Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university many moons ago. Way too many moons ago. So our focus this week is Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love, uh, which was published in uh, 2018. I have to put my hands up here and uh, say I have a vested interest um, in Dolly's book because essentially she's the extremely famous and successful me. I wrote a couple of books about dating and men and what it was like in your 20s back uh, in the late 2000s when I was a dating columnist in the London paper. Um, and so I've been sort of in, in that world of, of confessional memoir myself. Um, although I made the switch to to academia and partly to escape it, so I'm I'm interested in how she managed to pull off such a massive, massive success. Um, so the book is is called, is basically about it's 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 about Alderton's life. It's a memoir of her growing up, written in 2017 when she was 29, and it's really the journey through her very rocky 20s uh, to arrival at wisdom about life, love, and self-acceptance. It was heralded as just basically the best thing since sliced bread by <laughs> all and sundry. Um, Speaking as someone who never escaped academia, these are reviews that you can only dream of as an academic. Exactly. Elizabeth Day, the celebrity podcaster, um, said that Alderton is Nora Ephron for the millennial generation. The Evening Standard said that this is a book we will thrust into our friends' hands that will help heal a broken heart. Alderton's wise words can resonate with women of all ages. She feels like a best friend and your older sister all rolled into one, and her pages wrap around you like a warm hug. There's many more, but another one that really stands out is uh, from Lisa Tadeo, the massively best-selling author of Three Women. Another book about, well, this book, her book is much more about sex than Dolly's uh, <laughs> book is. But she wrote, there is no writer quite like Dolly Alderton working today, and very soon the world will know it. Well, the, the world definitely does know it and did, um, did very much know it, I think, Tom. And I think, I mean, evidence of the world increasingly being acquainted with Dolly Alderton is that this book then became a kind of 22-date theatre tour, which kicked off at the Palladium. I think there's a television adaptation which is pending, so we're about to hear much more of this. Um, and if I can just add one other quote to the, the litany of praise, I was interested that Julie Birchall says that this book is, quote, almost shockingly intimate. I quite like that. Um, Birchall adds, a wonderful writer who will surely inspire a generation the way that Caitlin Moran did before her. And I think the, the comparison with Caitlin Moran is interesting in that Moran's 2011 memoir, How to Be a Woman, was another story about you know, empowerment and sort of um, rediscovering one's femininity, but with a much more explicit sort of feminist politics, sort of fifth wave feminism, I think she called it. Um, whereas what's interesting here is how the politics is instead been displaced in favor of these other kind of relationships, in particular, the kind of relationship of female friendship. Um, which we'll no doubt come back to. So if you had to describe what kind of genre this book is, um, where does it come from? What kind of genre is it? Well, it's billed as a memoir, but to me, it's the self, uh, the sex confessional with the sex taken out. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's that um, genre 
really had a heyday. It's it's had various heydays over the centuries um, in various ways, but it had a heyday in the in the 90s and the 2000s. Of course, when I picked up at the tail end with with my own um, <laughs> my own contribution to the genre. But there you see, it, it, one of the most famous um, parts of that, or or or. or figures that got that genre really going was Belle de Jour and her diary of a call girl. And that was obviously about sex work, um, but it captured the nation's imagination and, and beyond. It was, it was a huge, huge success. I think originally ran in the Telegraph and then became the best-selling book and then the TV series. Um, and that, that really was all about sex. It started from a woman's a woman's experience of of unusual amounts of sex or sex in a circumstance that is is not the not the norm. Um, and then from there you get to the psychological side of things. Then there were sort of books like Girl with a One Track Mind that was also beginning with um, the, the 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 author's sort of almost seemingly potentially unhealthy, but but this was dressed up as feminism uh, relationship to sex. And again, from there we went into the world of psychology. This book, interestingly, isn't really interested in sex. It doesn't spend much time at all on, um, on on that side of things, and it really is all about the psychological aspects of being a woman um, in in relations, in relation to friends, in relation to various boyfriends and, and men that she meets. So um, it's it's very much more infused with with therapy culture in a way, rather than the the sort of ladette culture, I think, that that informed the 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 like sex memoirs that came before it. So it's it's a it's a curiously chaste in a way. I mean there's lots of bad behavior in it, but it's it's much chaster than the old than the old guard. It's a memoir of a reformed ladette, which I guess is its own sort of genre. Um, it's striking. I read somewhere that it began as a set of post-it notes and it's curiously fragmented. You know, there are lots of these kind of vignettes, lots of, you know, mixed interestingly with other kind of small pieces of writing like recipes or parodies of emails. Uh, but essentially she's a kind of observer. You know, she's collecting these anecdotes. She's collecting these stories. But the really transformative thing that happens to her towards the end of the memoir is that indeed she has therapy. Um, and once she's had therapy, the book then has an arc, you know, it has a kind of telos from her debauched, you know, wild girl days back in university towards a kind of maturer figure on the brink of adulthood um, when she's around 30. Um, but it does mean that all of that bad behavior is seen through the lens of having escaped from it on the brink of a new decade and instead from a perspective of seeking not fun, but some sort of self-knowledge, some sort of self-understanding. Yeah, I think I think exactly. This is really a book about selfhood, not sex. Um, and there is this sort of running through it is is again goes goes with what she she learns in therapy to some degree. But it's about identifying your true self, and that is sort of learning to love yourself and authenticity. Um, and authenticity becomes the absolute like that is the 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 core of this the entire paradigm in this book. And it's also that reflects the value system of, of everyone. I mean, if anyone has ever been on any kind of dating site, you can see that people obviously put a huge premium on an idea of honesty and authenticity and transparency. So you, you're supposed to say to people up front all of who you are, so your warts and all. And then, whereas I think there used to be certainly, I think in our, in our parents' generation or before that, an idea of an, maybe more of an onion-shaped uh, pro process where you'd peel off the layers, Dolly kind of encapsulates this new insistence on upfront everything, transparency and authenticity, 
all the, um, at all times. And, and, and through that, she comes through therapy to have this, this obsession with communing with herself, really. And I think, Tom, you had a, an interesting uh, quote to give us from, from her epiphany in Orkney. Well, yes, there is. It's, it, it points to the fact that embedded in this very contemporary take on you know, 21st century femininity, there is the kind of structure of something much more traditional, something much more like a spiritual autobiography. Um, you know, where again, someone has gone through a veil of sin, you know, many years of kind of temptation, and then emerges out in a search for their own dignity and their own autonomy. Um, and yes, very close to the end of the book, she's in Orkney, and she looks up at the stars and her mind swims in the uh, aftermath of a failed relationship. And she screams, really, because I am enough. My heart is enough. The stories and the sentences twisting around in my head are enough. And then she continues... I am my own universe, a galaxy, a solar system. I am the warm-up act, the main event, and the backing singers. It's a kind of religion of individualism, um, a kind of radical discovery of your own self-sufficiency, um, or at least the sufficiency that you find through the support of the women around you. Um, it's a sort of declaration of independence from the male gaze, but it really fits into older narratives about finding your true self, which was always there, latent and unacknowledged, and now finally embracing that at the end. I mean, how, when, when did that sort of emphasis on, on finding the true self really begin? Because I'm thinking of when, when therapy culture and therapy services explode, which is in, in Britain anyway, which is sort of in the, it's sort of what you could say goes back to Freud, but really the 60s and 70s. Are you thinking of, a, of an older trajectory? Of, of that. Very, I'm always thinking of older. You're always thinking of older. <laughs> when you say authenticity, I say Rousseau. You know, already back in the 18th century, the idea of writing a memoir that deliberately casts you in a bad light, that deliberately shows some of your failings as a as a sign of your honesty, as a sign of your underlying virtue, is already there. Um, and this sense of the self as a universe, or as a kind of you know, as a sort of revelation, um, you can find in Wordsworth, and then you know, all the way through to Whitman. Um, so there's a way in which there's something very 19th century about this, in a sense, very romantic with a capital R. But I wonder, yes, I wonder if, if um, there's something as 19th century about the fact that there's a bit of a duplicity of, 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 of perspective going on here. Because on one hand, there's look at my faults so that I can show you that I'm being authentic. But on the other hand, or it's more, it's a bit of double think. Um, those very faults are a bit studied. They're presented in a way that we can be jealous of them and find them charming. So there's a kind of relationship to vice, which on one hand is obviously a bit unhealthy at times, the drinking and the drugs and, the, and the, some, of, some of the sort of situations she winds up in. But on the other hand, they fit quite nicely into what we think of when we think of, for instance, the term hot mess. So an attractive young person who's inundated with sexual offers and, and likes to drink and gets into scrapes, but nothing too serious. Um, so it's almost like a parade of, of adorable, enviable, glamorous vice. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in being, in sort of seeming to unload her warts and alls, she's actually constructing a much more overall glamorous picture of herself and and that really i have to say it <laughs> it did it sort of remind me of of when i was in my 20s and i would just stare with wonder at my sort of friends and peers who could go on these benders and have all these sort of near-death experiences and then put them all down to you know wild nights or 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 just blackouts or th the kinds of things that would have left me traumatized for life um 
Uh, and yet it was, it was, I sort of envied them because there was, there was something a bit kind of glamorous about it, that kind of ability to let go and, and have these wild experiences. And I think Dolly really knows that that's what she's presenting here. So it's a, I just, I, I couldn't help but feel there's also like an element of maybe not disingenuity, but something there that isn't just all about presenting your vulnerabilities. Well, there's almost a voyeuristic relationship to her younger self, even though her old, wiser, post-therapy self realises that that was a dangerous, self-destructive path. We as the reader and she as the author clearly enjoy relishing, like reliving all of those episodes of bad behaviour. And, and those can be quite charming. It's interesting that she compares herself to Zoe Ball at one point. This is quite explicitly about being a ladette um, mm. at the start of the 21st century. Uh, she talks about broken Britain as a sign of a kind of out of control, new middle class youth. Um, but there's also behaviours that are genuinely much more destructive. I mean, the ease with which she falls into circles where people are doing drugs. Um, she clearly has major issues with her weight. Um, she's a kind of borderline alcoholic, although the word is never used in the text. But she clearly is, you know, profoundly dependent and profoundly vulnerable. And those addictions then get translated into the romantic realm as well. So this is someone who's living in an incredibly excessive kind of existence um, that, as you say, wants to turn that into a piece of fun for us as readers, even though in the final pages she wants to disavow it. Tom, tell me, though, do you think that for all her vulnerabilities and her definitely unhealthy relationship to alcohol, and although it's dressed up half the time as being just part of a good night out, do you think she's, she's really ever in it and knows what it's like to be truly kind of on the outside or, or, or lonely or anything? Or does she, does she perhaps strike you as a very popular, attractive person, really? <laughs> I have to say, it's only when you open uh, the back cover and you get a glimpse for me of Dolly Alderton that you realise she's an astonishingly beautiful young woman. Um, and, you know, one of the elephant in the room is that she was clearly always adored by her friends. Um, and this is a book that's called Everything I Know About Crossed Out, Crossed Out, Crossed Out Love. And the revelation at the end of it is that Dolly Alderton is profoundly loved. Um, and that's where there's something not conceited, but something a little bit problematic in terms of boasting about the kind of tightness of her friendship you know how wonderful her support network is and um, this is someone as you say who's never really tasted much loneliness in her life or much vulnerability um, and some of the way this is written gives you the sense of her being quite a kind of um, cool individual somebody who recognizes that even her most grotty experiences even her most kind of depraved moments are still lovingly revisited either through nostalgia but also through a sense of living on the edge, of knowing that you were cooler than the other people around you. And yes, and very interestingly, that breeds zero anxiety about judgment. She can, she can put forth her darkest hours because she knows that everybody will clap and say, that's brilliant, thank you for being so honest. And, I, and I'm wondering if there are any sort of historical parallels, Tom, you could help us with to sort of similarly warts and all um, accounts perhaps by women, but who are genuinely um, worried or worried about shame or or fear shame, and and it have, they have to anonymize themselves or or something. I think there's there's a sort of been a leapfrog to a, a proud vulnerability, a proud sort of record of sin and doing that. You you can wear it as a mantle to show your journey, and I, I that to me feels very that to me feels like a big change from perhaps how people would have especially women would have told of their lives a hundred years ago. Well, and if you go further back 200 years ago, a woman who is, you know, a woman whose private life is too candid 
um, is posthumously punished. I mean, a classic example being uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. After her death, William Godwin writes this loving tribute to her. However, he mentions her kind of free spirit. He mentions um, including her kind of affair um, when she'd been in Paris in the 1790s, this quite bohemian life. And it means that prudish society, who might otherwise respond to her views, are morally appalled by her. So those acts of disclosure have always been very risky for women, I think, until relatively recently. And there's been a sea change in the past generation. One thing I'd point out also about authenticity is I was interested in what Dolly doesn't share. Um, she writes extremely nicely. I have to say, I really enjoyed this as a, as a book. And there's a lot of wonderful turns of phrase. But one of the subplots is about the development of her as a writer. She talks about being a voracious bookworm when she's a teenager, but we never really get any sense of her intellectual life. We never really get much sense about how she learned her craft as a writer. Um, symptomatic of that, as well as not really talking very much about her childhood, which is also completely absent in a book which promises to tell you everything. Actually, childhood isn't very relevant. Her family are also completely kept in the wings you know they never really get a look in and so I feel that that promise that she's making to the reader that I'm going to give you everything is highly edited and she's editing it both to be likable but she's also editing it in order to be kind of as I say sort of relatable in a way and so some of the things that make her pretty unique and also quite privileged are all kept out of view. Absolutely in fact the in deleting the family and for instance her relationship to her brother and pretty much paring down all of the relationships she has with men, we, we end up with a sort of overwhelming emphasis, as you've said, on her friends and particularly her best friend, Farley. And I think we should just go into that for a second because the big, the big sort of riddle of this book is that it, it claims to, to know everything. Well, it claims to reveal everything the author knows about love. So we assume we're going to get a lot about love, including romantic and sexual love. But it is a clever trick of her to make you realize towards the end that she is subverting that genre where young women talk about their sex lives and they talk about men. And they, that's, that's the dating book. That's the format that I used to try to write in to some degree, but found it a bit too excruciating because you were expected to write about sex. But she's not doing that. She's, she's, her, her sleight of hand reveals that she's telling us everything she knows about love between friends. And, but it's, it's sort of between friends, but it really ends up being about her friend Farley. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you take out sexuality, as she does really. I mean, there, there are these accounts of sex with men, but it's not, it's not really about sexual love. The intensity does veer into something that I would consider borderline sexual. It's certainly obsessional. Um, do, do you, what do you make of the, of the relationship that is front and center in this book, Tom? I did find it unsettling in a way. It was both touching and tender, but then there are moments where she talks about this friendship with her, with Farley. Um, as she says at one point, um, I, I knew what it was to love the person walking next to me as much as I did, so deeply, so furiously, so impossibly. That kind of friendship is an impossible love. That seems to defy what we think of friendship as something that might be consoling or something that might be a you know, source of support, which it is. But the act that there's something unattainable in it, that there's something so perfect in it that it can never actually be captured, that does seem new and seems kind of charged. And I think the contrast in the book is that the men, you know, although some of them are quite quixotic, you know, one of them, I think the father discovered a rare fish. There are these men who have got these sort of curious kind of back histories and sort of gilded um, exotic kind of features, they're all essentially forgettable. And instead, you know, it's Farley who is the kind of art, who is the spine of the book. Um, but in another moment, Dolly also says that she couldn't share 
the things that she shared with strangers or that she thinks she shared with her therapist with her friends. And so there's something about, apart from Farley, the other friends are there as people to have fun with. You know, this is all about hedonism. It's about excess. As I say, it's about drinking. And her more vulnerable moments, it's unclear how far she can articulate with them, with the people that she's supposedly closest to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do you think that's indicative, Zoe, of a generational thing that actually is is to have people to go and hit the town with to get people to go and have your kind of friday night kind of big weekend with um and that some of that desire to kind of almost compete with each other over men or compete with each other over how much you drink is pushing the more vulnerable aspects of sharing and caring into the margins yeah i mean many of the, the set setups she describes are they reminded me of a sort of coven of pups or little lights or <laughs> I love the mixed metaphor of a cover of pups <laughs> sure. I don't know what pup what, what, what denotes like a bunch of pups maybe a brood or but they um, <laughs> there's a sort of way in which they, they, they are like little a litter Zoe I think it's a litter of pups they, they sort of like live in these dirty flats and they which we all did to some degree they go between eating and being drunk and sleeping and there's there is something almost survival esque about the way they live together. They they have these. It's very ritualized, um, and I'm not sure that within those rituals, which are you know to do with friends and, and 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 not just rituals, but support mechanisms in place, so that when somebody has run out of money, she describes quite an ornate hmm. system where they provide each other with money until the until that one gets paid. It's almost like a relay, or when someone's too drunk to come home, someone will go and collect them. I'm not sure within that kind of setup, there's much room for for really showing when you're when you're vulnerable or 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 showing perhaps a side of yourself that might actually be sad a bit pathetic i don't think maybe within that that space of sort of camaraderie really uh maybe there that's that was really the thing i mean i think another of the omissions just a last thing on farley is that she has this at one point um romantic triangle you know she has a kind of uh, sense of sexual jealousy over farley's boyfriend scott um, and yet once that relationship winds up unexpectedly after many years the book gives no explanation of why this bizarre kind of love triangle has suddenly collapsed you know why scott and farley break up is never really explained and i suppose that's another thing about voyeurism if to use the book the word is that there's both a kind of fascination with her own badly behaved younger self but she's also very interested in other people's trauma and you sort of feel that some of the most moving bits in the book is when she's describing Farley's experiences you know the pain of that breakup the real pain of losing her sister to leukemia that there's something about ventriloquizing her friend that gives the book its rationale it's like Farley's suffering that in some ways creates a lot of the emotional depth in Dolly Alderton's story. But isn't that funny that that what goes on to be a massive, phenomenal bestseller with a TV series coming out? I think that, again, we're back at this riddle, which is that we, she never really spends much time analyzing why her relationships with men don't work. Um, so we, we, it's, it's, all, it's, it's really it's just about friendship and about Farley and about the relationship with herself. And I don't, it surprises me because I, I began hearing about this book when I was swimming around in the ladies' pond in the summer and lots of young, very young women in their early 20s even I, I spoke to a couple who were 19 18 who had been talking about it um you know, all the, those those girls who are swimming together are talking about boys 
they're talking about romantic relationships. That's where the obsessions lie. They're not talking as extensively about their female friends. So, I mean, I like to push everything together to fit my, my theses. And this, this bit fits my thesis about a kind of end of sex that we're entering, a sort of post-sexual domain where the rising generation is a bit clueless about what purpose a romantic relationship is meant to serve. I know I'm being wildly kind of unsubstantiated here, but I'm making making like insulting claims about a whole generation. (laughs) I I think- Well, generation is a key theme, I think, in the book. It it is, it is. But I just just wonder if there's a way in which they've they've grown up with, I suppose, porn from the the get-go, that the apps kind of stimulate a very callous, view of the opposite sex and and actually the whole thing becomes something of a bore and perhaps the attention has just shifted onto friendship and maybe maybe that's where substantive analysis lies and the girls I overhear in the ladies pond talking about boys maybe that's just a passing kind of whimsy for a Saturday afternoon and the real stuff the real meat lies in them thinking about their relationships with their other friends that would be a big that would be a generational change because i assure you that my friends and i really just talked about boys that's what we were interested in but is she but dolly would suggest that the boys are there simply as a pretext to story you know and maybe that's the part of her that already knows that she's a writer very early on but she talks about herself as a metal detector you know kind of gathering anecdotes gathering incidents it feels that even the conquests with men are just an excuse to convert it back into narrative you know to turn it back into anecdote or into story with friends um one reason i think these ladies uh, these young women at the ladies pond that you mentioned found themselves in it is that it, the thing is designed almost as a soundtrack to your 20s I'm interested in the way that Dolly uses musical references all the way through, you know, her friends communicate through listening to certain tracks, you know, it's the Joni Mitchell on the car journey or whatever that brings them together. Um, And I feel that the whole book is very self-conscious about describing that period from your teenage years to the end of your 20s, almost through a sort of hazy Instagram filter. The whole thing is bathed in nostalgia and nostalgia for what it was to be a millennial at the dawn of the 21st century, a world in which external politics never impinges upon you. I mean, there's no public events, historical events, external events that are ever mentioned in this. Instead, you measure out historical change through the food that you eat, through the clothes that you wear. She talks about you know, wearing Tammy Girl as a, as, a, as a young girl at school, through, um, through the brands that you snack on. Uh, there's a way in which consumerism is the thing that creates the kind of rhythm of her life from her late teens into her kind of early 30s. And I'm sure as a result, she's making herself into a portrait of a generation Absolutely. who cannot recognize all of these references. Yes, and, and another thing to add to that list is, is all the technologies she's, she's, she's chronicling change. So she begins with um, her obsession with um, MSN, I think, or, or Instant Messenger, one of those things in, in her teenage years. And, and that is something I've actually heard quite a few people who are younger than me um, talk about how, oh, do you remember back when we used to watch, you know, like DVDs or something? Uh, mm-hmm. So there is this sort of sense that this is the way this generation can carve out a historical niche of themselves. They are jealous. They want to clamber onto the onto the history carousel too. And the way they do it, as you say, absolutely, is through consumerism. It's through charting changes in technology above all, because that's what's changed so quickly. So just even the the change from VHS to DVD that suddenly becomes a way of getting on board with history. But unlike previous generations, it's the complete absence of actual history, world history, the Iraq War, nine eleven, you name it, that sort of defines this version of history. And, and that's a sort of interesting shift because on one hand, this generation is, is 
well, they, they're waging the culture war to, to a large degree. But on the other hand, there is something, there's still quite a big apolitical uh, segment, clearly, in this market that's driven the, the success of Dolly Alderton's book. This is, not a this is not a political rallying call. It's a rallying call for selfhood. It's a rallying call for a kind of non-political sisterhood through friendship. This is, so so it's, it's interesting. It is, it's a sort of depoliticized manifesto, really, of the self. It's a rallying call as well for getting out of Stanmore. I mean, it is a story about how you kind of escape from your suburban origins that you're clearly embarrassed about, from your public school education that you both loved but are also ashamed of, and kind of create yourself as something new. Yeah. So, Zoe, it comes to a final question. Uh, if you had to put your finger on a factor, why the hype with this book then? Why the hype around uh, everything I know about love? You know, I wasn't, I still, I'm not 100% sure. And that's why I made, that's why we read it. And that's why we're doing this discussion. I think, I think the hype comes down to, or, or is part, is, a, is really lies in this business of making the self transparent and take, and that being the, the, what you need to do to take it on the therapy journey. I think it's about the turning inside out of the self and showing all, keeping nothing back. And I think there's an obsession with total honesty. Um, and the way you present it has to be in a certain kind of, almost a, a sort of a positive growth oriented way. And I think this book is really just a huge advert for a personal journey. And that is the way increasing numbers of things are built now. People talk about everything as a journey. Even um, branding is a journey. So I, I think that Dolly Alderton presents a journey, and 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 people people want that journey. They want they want that therapeutically cleansing journey. I think for many people it was just fun to read. I mean, it, she's a she's a very good writer. She's she is very funny. I have to say that I I'm clearly like, although I'm I'm. <laughs> I'm <laughs> obscenely I, jealous. But. <laughs> I, I'm obscenely jealous, and I'm I'm not a like an old lady yet. But I have to say that I I find I suppose I I feel generationally loyal to a brand of of uh, of confessional writing from women or memoir that that does um, include more emphasis on uh, romantic relationships. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of the book is that she's, she hasn't succeeded to have a boy. She's never had a long-term boyfriend. She had, she, that's quite a glaring omission. She's never lived with anyone. She, she hasn't really succeeded with, with romance and considering how beautiful she is and, and clearly smart, that, that remains sort of fascinating to me. So I, I would have liked her to maybe just a bit maybe that to have been the, 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 the center of it, but, but it wasn't. And clearly I'm a little bit out of step with what everyone wants, which is, which is a rollicking tale of, of craziness in your 20s and, and, uh, and extremely deep uh, female. That turns, into, that turns into a room of one's own though, in that you know, by the end she's got, as you say, her kind of personal setup in Camden. And we're meant to believe that that is as rewarding as being in a kind of heterosexual relationship. She's got her friends, she's got her creative independence. That's some kind of victory. I think your point about journey is spot on Zoe. And I think a lot of people want to do the journey with her because everybody's scripting their own lives in this way. And she holds herself up as a sort of friend, as somebody you can really empathize with. I think women who are at her age, women who are, you know, a little bit younger than her, Generation Z, women who are older than her, can all find something in Dolly um, and kind of feel this sense of sisterhood, as you say, feel this sense of connection with her um, as someone who's narrating their times for them in ways that they can understand in a much more kind of emotionally grounded, more kind of everyday, quotidian sort of aspect. Um, 
Oh, I was just going to say, do you think there's anything in this that a young man might like? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I laughed. I mean, the humor does also travel, but it does feel that we are completely superfluous uh, in Dolly's worldview. Um, you know, it's, if you read it as an example of good writing, um, but there isn't much space there for any of her male friends or indeed any kind of gay friends either. It's a, it's a remarkably all-female tribe all female and relatively undiverse. Um, so, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for now. But tune in next time when we'll be probing Leopoldstadt by Tom Stoppard. 